0: let all who are under the yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of god and our doctrine may not be spoken against and let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are because they are brethren but let them serve them all the more because those who partake ...of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men and depraved, of depraved minds and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ to testify the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you may keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring out at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who also possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in the presence, in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all these to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may be, they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard that what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith grace be with you.
1: Fight, 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 fight. If you've been in a schoolyard any time in your life, you probably remember that chant. It usually starts when someone yells out, "Fight!" And everyone from the school runs from every direction and they gather in one place because they want to witness the fight, which is kind of counterproductive because the teachers know what's happening and so they come and shut down the fight, generally speaking. But I managed to witness a couple of fights uh, in my time at school and I've got to say they were pretty brutal. There were fists flying everywhere and feet and all sorts of body parts and you could see each blow connecting from one person to another and you could almost feel the pain as they punched into each other, each person exerting every single ounce of strength they had just to stay standing and to win the fight. The fight would generally finish when someone was so exhausted or badly injured that they could no longer stand and fight anymore. These fights, of course, are not good fights. They're not the kind of violence we condone uh, in Australia anymore. We have the one punch coward punch, which is a good move calling it a coward punch because it's not a good thing to do. We don't condone fighting. But in this passage, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, Paul makes it clear that there is such a thing as a good fight, and the good fight is to fight the fight of faith. And so in verse 12, we come to the great challenge of this second letter to Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so in the first five chapters, Paul was outlaid. He's laid down a pattern for Timothy to follow in life, in faith. And in leadership. But as we get to the last chapter, he wants to make it clear to this young guy who he loves so dearly that if he's going to do all that stuff, he's going to have to fight the fight. It's not going to be easy. And if there's someone who's qualified to talk about uh, not being easy following Christ, it would be Paul himself. He is a man who suffered shipwreck and beating and falsely accused, thrown in prison, abused, whipped, persecuted, all for his faith in Jesus. And so Paul knows. It's not easy to follow Jesus. And so here he is preparing this young man, telling him that if he's going to follow Christ and lead this church, he's going to have to learn how to fight. Now, life for each of us is lived on a continuum. It starts generally uh, when we're born, and we're going to call that this morning our birth. Now, you might not remember that, but your mum probably does. Uh, it was a painful moment for her and a wonderful moment for us. And so that's the moment we were born, our birth. If you're a Christian here today. You've come to a second key moment in your life, and it's what I want to call today the, the, t- the moment of new birth, the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He came into your life. Uh, you knew that he forgave your sins. Uh, you knew that you had the hope of eternal life, and you accepted him as your Lord and Savior. That's what we're going to call new birth. Now, all of us are going to come to the point in life, even though we're saved, we're going to have eternal life with God. We're going to come to the time in life when physically our body dies. We're going to call that death and all of us are going to face death unless Jesus returns first. And so if Jesus returns or we die, what is left for us in the future in Christ is eternal life. And so we're going to put that here, death, Jesus returning. Now, I want you to uh, think for a moment of eternal life. Eternal life is forever. And so I want you to try and picture this visually. I want you to picture going down a Canadian Road. Going up the hill, over Princess Highway, up the hill, over the top of Francis Xavier College, uh, stopping there for a while, and then continuing to go forever. And you're going to get a picture of what eternity is like. It's forever. It's a long way. And so visually try and picture how far that is, and it just keeps going and going and going. Now, Now that you've visualized eternity, this stage represents your life. And when you think of how long eternity is, our life really isn't that long, is it? And so today I want to get across that our life is lived on a continuum and we only get one life to live for Jesus. We only get one time to live for Christ. And if you're a Christian, the ultimate goal of your life should be that whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. This morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, my prayer is that you'll come to the point of new birth where you'll come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He's the only hope we have for eternity. He's the only hope that will be forgiven and accepted by a holy and perfect God. And so my prayer is, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that today God will be working in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you're here today, like the vast majority are, and you're already a Christian, then I want you to know that you only get one life to live for Jesus, and the purpose of your life is to bring him glory in all that you do. You see, when we come to this point, new birth. At the moment we accept Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. And there's a process that starts in our life, which the Bible calls sanctification. And it's the process by which God is changing us from the inside out. He's convicting us. He's challenging us. He's changing us. He's stretching us. And he's conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so what you look like at this point when you give your life to the Lord, and what you look at this point when you die should be completely different. Because from this point to this point, you should be constantly changing to become more and more like Jesus. In the letter to Timothy, Paul said that to Timothy, that people should see his progress. People should see the progress in our faith as the Holy Spirit continually changes us to look more like Jesus. And why is it important to look more like Christ? Well, it's important because as we look more like Jesus, we're going to bring greater glory to God and we're going to be a greater blessing to the world around us. It sounds really simple, doesn't it? Sounds simple, right? Is everyone awake this morning? Yes. Good. Night if you're awake. Three people are awake. I'm going to yell a bit louder to wake everyone up. It sounds simple, doesn't it? Just to to follow Jesus, that's better. And, And allow him to transform us. But we all know that it's not that easy, is it? Does anyone else here feel like living your faith is a fight? Does it ever feel like Keeping the faith is this constant battle in the big things, but also in the small things. I mean, just getting up on a Sunday morning and gathering with God's people can be a battle, can't it? Maybe that was your battle this morning. Maybe the kids were playing up. Maybe the apathy just kicked in and you thought, you know what? It's cold. It's kind of wet and dreary outside. And it might be easy just to stay in bed this morning. Well, if that's how you felt this morning and you're here, I want to say, well done. Ben's nodding his head. He was like that. I want to say, well done, Ben and everyone else for fighting the fight, for getting up and being here. On the other hand, if you're listening to this on the podcast, (laughs) I'm a lousy Holy Spirit, so I'll let him do what he needs to do this morning. (laughs) It's a battle in the little things, but it's a battle in the big things, isn't it? I don't know if you've noticed in our culture, but it seems to be that there's an increasing opposition to the Bible and to Christianity in general. Many of us in life, we face uh, personal tragedies and trials that can kind of shake our faith to the core. At the same time, we struggle sometimes to put our faith in a God that we can't see. At other times, there's a tension of believing in grace, God's undeserved love, but, but also battling with our own insecurities and inadequacies. How could God possibly love me? We have a battle with many temptations and the leaning towards comfort or material possessions as the ultimate source of joy. There are times when we let each other down and we allow fence to come in, a fence to come in and break fellowship. There's the pressure of political correctness, and of course, just the difficulty of living at the gospel and taking a stand for Jesus every day. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Keeping the faith is a constant fight. And even as Christians, we have these battles going on in our hearts and in our lives over and over again. And so we need to ask the question, why do those battles and trials come? Well, there's many different answers to that question, but I think the biggest answer that underlines it is that we have got to understand, church, that we have a real enemy, the devil. And if the aim of our life is to pursue Christ, to bring glory to God, to become more like Jesus, to be a blessing to the world around us, then the devil's going to do everything he can to distract us from that. His mission is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The Bible says he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's the great deceiver. He's the father of lies. He's the accuser, and he'll use every scheme he can to try and cause us to give up the fight. Church, this is what I call the battlefield. We come to know Jesus. We want to become more like him, but we find ourselves on the battlefield. We're fighting against a real enemy, and the battlefield is really about two things. It's fighting against the devil, that's one thing, but the other thing is pursuing Christ. You see, a battle's never just about uh, standing your ground and fighting, it's also about taking ground. And in the Christian life, it's very much about taking a stand against the evil one, but making a stand for Jesus, pursuing him in everything that we do. This passage talks about that in verse 12. It says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Verse 11, pursue Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So the question I have for you today is a very simple one. It's simply this. Are you up for the fight? Are you ready to fight the good fight of faith? Who wants to come up and prove it? No, don't no, put your hand down. Tabitha. you'd beat me easy. I don't, I don't want to fight you. But are we ready for the fight? Are we going to fight against the enemy? Because if we're going to live out the mission of our lives, to pursue Jesus, if we're going to be a blessing to the world around us, if we're going to have any impact as a church, then it's not going to come easy. The devil is going to fight us at every turn and it's going to cost us something. And so we as Christians need to be people that learn to fight. And it's so sad to say that there are many Christians that have given up the fight. They have died on the battlefield. This passage itself tells us that in verse 21. It says that there are many people who have departed the faith. How sad that is. It's true in Paul's day. It's true in ours. People just give up the fight. Paul, in chapter 6 of this letter, is encouraging and preparing a young man, Timothy, a man he loves dearly, to get ready to fight the fight of his life. We know that Timothy's a young man, a timid man. We also know he's overseeing the church in Ephesus, where the devil is having a field day He's literally running riot. His mentor, Paul, has now left on his journeys. And he's all alone as the lead pastor of a growing church, which is under the constant threat through false teaching and false teachers who the devil is inspiring to lead people astray. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight of faith, not just for yourself, but for those that have been entrusted under your care. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says these words. When the devil sees which way our lusts carry us, he will soon bait his hook accordingly. Let me say that again. When the devil sees which way our lusts carry us, he will soon bait his hook accordingly. And this is exactly what he's doing at the church in Ephesus. So here's the analogy. Paul says we're fighting a fight. In the second letter to Timothy says we're running a race. We've got to finish the race. We've got to endure. We've got to keep going to the finish line. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a struggle. Matthew Henry's analogy is that we're in a stream and we're, we're heading towards a destination. We're on a journey. We're pursuing Jesus. We're becoming more like him. We want to take people with us to know the Lord to eternity. That's the journey we're on. But as we're in this stream, heading upstream towards Jesus, there are many dangers. There are many snags, there are many predators and the picture Matthew Henry paints is this, that the devil's on the side of the bank with his fishing rod and he's baiting up the hook and he's looking out and he knows the things we struggle with and he knows there's people that struggle with sexual temptation so he he baits his hook with that and he throws it out. He knows there's people that, that want dominance and power and so he baits his hook that way and he throws it out. He knows there are people that have a love for money, an obsession with comfort, a a tendency towards negativity, a, a want to gossip. And so he's on the bank and he's baiting up his hook, trying to hook people so that he can reel them in, get them out of the race, get them up on the bank where they will slowly die. We need to be aware there's a real enemy and he's after each and every one of us. What do we know about bait? Bait looks good. I've never spoken to a fish personally, Um, but if I did, I imagine they would say that when they see the bait, they don't go, yes, I'm going to die today. I'm sure that's not what they're thinking when they see the bait. They're looking at the bait and they're going, yes, that's exactly what I want. That's what I need. I'm hungry. And you know what? The devil works exactly the same way. He throws out things in our life as a distraction that look good. And we go, yes, that's what I want. That's what I need. And what he wants to do is to bait the hook so that we will take the bait and the thing that he's baiting us with will become the most important thing in our life. He wants to get us out of the stream. He wants to stop us from fighting the fight. He wants to help us avoid finishing the race. And so we need to be aware there's a real enemy. At Ephesus, the devil is throwing out bait through the false teachers that is trapping some of the people and causing them to stop fighting the fight of faith, to depart the faith. It's trapping them. It's bringing them up on the bank where they'll soon die. In the very first chapter, from the start of this letter, we know that false teaching is an issue. In Ephesus, Paul says to Timothy, command certain men not to teach false doctrine. In chapter 4, such teachings are coming through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. In this chapter, in verse 3, he says, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. And so in Ephesus, the devil is using false teachers to throw out bait. And there's two main types of bait he is using. The first one we explored in chapter four, and it's designed for those who tend towards self-righteousness, the kind of people that want to be seen to be holier than everyone else. The kind of people that want to think that they're a self-made man or woman. They can do things in their own strength. And so he throws out this bait saying that Jesus is not enough. If you want to be in relationship with God, Jesus is one thing, but you need to do a bunch of stuff as well. You need to abstain from marriage. You need to avoid certain foods. And so what he's basically saying, if I was to summarize it in one sentence, is that Jesus isn't enough and you have to earn your relationship with God by how good you are or by the things that you do. And so what's this doing? Well, we know it's turning people's attention away from Christ. The gospel message is a simple one. It is that we don't deserve relationship with God. None of us deserve his affection. We've all sinned. We've all short, fallen short of God's standard. Every one of us has rebelled against the holy and perfect God. The Bible calls that sin. Sin is an obstacle that separates us from a God who's completely holy. The Bible says that we need to be punished for the sins that each of us have committed and the wages of sin is death. And so what we've earned is not relationship with God. What we've all earned through our actions is the death penalty. And that's what we all deserve to pay. But on the cross, Jesus, the perfect son of God, God in human form, the only one who was worthy of relationship with God the Father by the perfect life he lived, died the death of a sinner because he was paying the price for you and for me. He was the only one qualified to do that. He he died the death we deserve to die. The Bible calls that grace. Don't you love that word, grace? undeserved love that God lavishes on us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. So Jesus, through his sacrificial death and his resurrection, opened up the way back into relationship with God the Father because the obstacle of sin was removed and he paid the price for it at the cross. And so when we put our faith in him, when we say Jesus is enough, when we say, thank you, Lord, for dying for me, when we accept him as our Lord and Savior, that obstacle is removed and we can be in relationship with God. We can know in Christ that we're forgiven. We can know in Christ that we have the hope of eternal life that can be never taken away from us. It's an awesome thing to know the gospel, to know Jesus as our Savior. And so what Jesus did was enough. Nothing else has to be added. The Bible says that his grace is sufficient for me. It's not Jesus plus anything. Jesus is enough. I can't make that clear enough today. And so if Jesus is enough, can I encourage you today to put your faith in him? And when you do, you will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And So the first bit of bait the devil was throwing out to this church was the bait of self-righteousness. Jesus isn't enough. You can earn your way back to God. The second bit of bait is revealed in the passage from today, and it's found particularly in verse 5. These teachers were teaching the people that godliness is a means to financial gain. This is what we know today as the prosperity gospel, and it's hideous. It's hideous because it implies that Jesus isn't enough. And when we follow Jesus, Jesus is the goal. He's the, he's the blessing, he's the gift, he's everything we need. But what this teaching implies is that we follow Jesus because we'll get something even greater than him, and that's material blessing and wealth. You see how hideous it is. It puts Jesus not as the center, not as the vision of our lives, not as the most important thing, but a means to an end, and that ends is financial gain. I'm not going to teach too much on this part today because I preached this exact passage in our DNA series in February in a message I did on generosity. So if you want to hear about that, you can listen to the podcast. But what I want to do today is focus on what this teaching is doing. It's doing exactly the same thing. It's once again taking the focus off Jesus being enough. If you really want to be happy, then follow Jesus and you'll become wealthy and healthy and wise and you everything will go well. And if things don't go well, it's just that you don't have enough faith. That's the kind of prosperity teaching that was happening here and happens in our world today. But we know from scripture, as well as from life, that it's just not true. We know from reading God's word, but also just in life, that there's no guarantee that even after we give our life to the Lord, even after there's a new birth, that life will be easy financially, relationally, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. But what we do know is that in those times we have everything we need to endure. We have everything that we need in Christ. And if we have to fight every day for the rest of our lives just to stand against the enemy and pursue Christ, it might seem like a long time, but in the light of eternity it's like that. And so it's going to be worth every moment of the fight. And so my question to you again is are you up for the fight? Are you ready to fight the enemy? You see, the scheme of the enemy is this, that he wants us to lose sight of eternity, to take our eyes off the prize and to settle for a counterfeit here on earth. That the money and the possessions, that will make you happy. That will bring you fulfillment and joy. But I want to tell you that God's word teaches that it'll only ever be fleeting and it'll only ever be a poor substitute for what we have in Christ Jesus for all of eternity. And so we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to keep our eyes on eternal life. We need to take hold of the eternal life, as the Apostle Paul says. And so what's the application from this message for each of us? Well, the application is this, that we have a real enemy that we need to be aware of. He is scheming and plotting ways to distract us from the lives that we're called to live. But the thing I really want you to know today is this, that you have everything you need to win the battle in Christ. You know, sometimes I think we're completely oblivious to the fact that there's something going on in the spiritual realm. We're completely oblivious to what the enemy's doing. And things go wrong in life and we go, oh, gee, that's a shame. I wonder why that's happening. We need to open our eyes and realize that there's an enemy that's waging war against us. There's an enemy that that doesn't want your marriage to work. And so husbands and wives, be aware that the enemy's doing everything he can to to break up your marriage. In fact, I heard a guy preach a few years ago and he was on a plane and he was sitting next to a guy and it was his custom to... um, you know, prompt conversation with people on the plane. And he asked this guy about what he did and who he was. And the guy told him he was a Satanist. And he said, who are you? And he said, well, I'm a Christian and I'm praying for you. And the guy said, well, I'm praying for you too. I'm praying against your marriages. I'm praying that your families would be destroyed. I'm praying that the devil would have the way, his way in your church. It just is a reminder that there's a Satanist praying against us. There's a real enemy that's doing some stuff. And so we can't be oblivious to what he's doing. Sometimes we're oblivious. Sometimes we're fully aware. A few weeks ago, um, as a court team, we were praying about the AGM coming up. And we were talking about people that would be appropriate for the role of elder. And we came up with a list of names that we were praying into and we thought these people would all be good for that particular role. And within a couple of weeks no word of a lie, every one of them went through a huge struggle. Someone had an accident. Someone was diagnosed with an illness. Someone's illness got worse. Someone else was offered another job geographically which would cause them to move. Every single person we'd prayed about had something happen in their life. And at first I thought, gee, what a coincidence. And then I thought, wake up McFly, there's a real enemy. And maybe there's a devil that just hates Follow Baptist Church. And maybe there's a devil that doesn't like the fact that there's people growing here. There's people passionate about Jesus. There's people that want to make a difference in this world. Maybe he hates that. And maybe he's waging war against us. So let's not be oblivious. Let's open our eyes and understand there's a fight going on. And we need to be prepared to fight. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, on how we can fight. It says finally be strong in the lord and in his mighty power put on the full armor of god so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes he's scheming make no doubt about that so put on the full armor of god so that you can take your stand against him for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, once again, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand, there's your word again, stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Today I've invited a real-life warrior to come in here and to demonstrate this in a visual way. He's ready for the fight and he wants to demonstrate to you What a warrior looks like with the armor of God on. I hope he's not going to be too shy. Come on, buddy, you're going to fight the fight. Excellent, here he comes. Come on up. (laughs) (laughs) This is my son with whom I am well pleased. (laughs) He's ready to fight the fight, he's got on the armor. And this is what you should look like every morning before you leave the house, when you wake up. Uh, you might think, well, I can't walk into my workplace like that. I'll get the sack. Or people will run for their lives. I'm not talking physically. I'm talking spiritually. When you look in the spiritual mirror, this is what you should see. That you're someone who's prepared every day to fight the battle. I want you to notice with this armor that some of it's protective. We've Got the helmet on, protecting the head. We've got the breastplate here. We've got the shield. This is protective gear. But I also want you to notice that some of it's offensive We've got the sword of the spirit. Stand back, everyone. We've got his feet ready to advance and to take ground. And so some of this is to protect us. Some of us, some of it is to take uh, ground for God, to to win the battle. And so let's give this guy a a round of applause. Thank you, Well done. Put on the armor every day. As I said, some of it's protective. The breastplate of righteousness guards our heart. The devil wants to come in and get in and discourage us. It guards our heart. The helmet of salvation protects our minds from the doubts and the fears and the insecurities. It reminds us that we are saved. It's the helmet of salvation. We're secure in Christ. The belt of truth helps us to know who God is and who we are in him. To know what is right and what is wrong. The shield of faith is to hold up against the enemy. Every accusation, every fiery dart he shoots at us, telling us you're not good enough. We hold up the shield of faith and say, I'm a child of God. When he tells you that, that you can't be forgiven, that you can hold up the shield of faith and say, I am righteous because of Jesus. When he says you can't do it, you can't keep fighting, you can't keep going, we hold up the shield of faith and we say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so we hold up the shield of faith and we fight off the advances of the enemy, but we also pick up the weapons to help us advance. We have the feet of peace that help us advance on mission and our pursuit of Christ to take ground for Jesus we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's a weapon. This book is not a dead book. It's a weapon. And let me tell you, it's no coincidence that that the devil's trying to get this out of our churches, trying to get it out of the pulpit, trying to get it off our lips, out of our hearts, out of our schools, out of anywhere where it can have an impact. It's no coincidence because if you go into a battle without your sword, there's not much chance you're going to win. You going with a shield, you might be able to stand your ground for a while, but you're not going to be able to advance forward and take ground. The Word of God is a weapon. And so we need to put it into our hearts. We need to have it on our lips. How do we know the difference between truth and lies? We know it from the Word of God. I want you to remember Jesus when he was tempted in the desert. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter four. It says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil isn't that interesting holy spirit let him there after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry imagine that guys you know after 40 minutes fasting we are hungry 40 days and 40 nights he was fasting he was hungry and so the tempter came he knew what the weakness would be in that moment didn't he and so he came he baited his hook and he threw it out there he said if you're the son of god tell these stones to become bread jesus answered it is written. Not I'm smarter than you. Not I'm God in human form, you idiot. He said, no, it's written. He quoted scripture. He said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you're really the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it's written. There he is twisting scripture that he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. What's the hook here? It's material blessing. It's prosperity. Everything can be yours. All this I will give you as if it was his to give anyway. And he said, if you bow down and worship me, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This book's a weapon. It's a weapon against the enemy. Listen to what happens. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. It's a weapon. We've got to put on the full armor of God. Get ready for the fight because there is a spiritual battle going on. The devil is waging war on our lives, but greater is he who is in us. Than he who is in the world. Timothy at Ephesus had all the weapons he needed to lead the church and to fight the fight, and so do we. Let me finish with Paul's words at the end of his life in the second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 7. He says these words I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. My prayer, the prayer of my heart, is that each of us would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would live out our days for him. And that one day we'd stand before him and we'd have exactly the same words. And he would say in response, well done, good and faithful servant.